From the University of Notre Dame, these are Notre Dame Stories. In this episode, a look at preservation. A Notre Dame engineer is aiming to increase the number of successful heart transplants in the U.S. And an alumna is working at the Vatican Museums, helping to maintain the artwork that has symbolized faith and culture for centuries. It is a relatively recent field. Uh, the term coined early 90s, I believe, if I recall correctly, there was a paper in Science um, magazine, uh, Tissue Engineering was the title of the paper, and it was 1993 or uh, around that time. And the idea there was to use uh, fabrication methods that can create um, materials that are biocompatible, meaning that it wouldn't cause any adverse effects if you put in the body of an individual. Pinar Zorlatuna is an associate professor in the Department of Aerospace and Mechanical Engineering. She specializes in tissue engineering, especially mimicking natural biochemical reactions with fabricated materials. Say you end up having a um, heart attack or a broken bone with a large defect that cannot be healed by itself. The idea there is to use materials that can guide the cells to grow in a similar fashion to the ones that grow in your body and create functional tissues in the lab, test them obviously, and then put them back in the patient so that that defect that cannot be healed by the regenerative uh, processes of the body can be remedied by that intervention. Okay, so it sounds similar maybe to a concept I think a lot of people are familiar with maybe skin grafting? Yes. Okay. But the difference being is, so um, in the case of a skin grafting or an organ transplant, you are taking another viable organ or a tissue from either some part, uh, like located in a different part of your body or from a different individual and you're transferring it. In the case of the tissue engineering, the goal is to create that from scratch. So you mm. start with just materials and cells that are oftentimes uh, like adult stem cells that can be produced in large amounts. Just you need a tiny, tiny bit of a biopsy from the patient, not a whole skin part from the back. Uh, as opposed to that, it is like a less invasive procedure if it can be succeeded. Okay. Anything new, people maybe view with a little bit of skepticism, but especially if we're talking about humans and engineering, you know, you get those two words together, people kind of uh, maybe step back a little bit. Have you encountered that? Oftentimes, my encounters were, were on the other end. Uh, people get too excited. Okay, when I'm getting my my new heart or like, <laughs> uh, obviously, it is way down the road. This is all baby steps towards trying to create such organs in the lab that can be really functional and used by the patients. But obviously, there are uh, like good reasons to be unsure how or when it can be succeeded because it's a really hard grand challenge. You've been uh, uh, published a couple times uh, for, for two applications uh, of this. So stepping back and kind of actually building up on your previous question, um, when this term first coined, everyone was so excited in like very short period of time, we will have these off-the-shelf tissues mm -hmm. that can be used right and left, which didn't happen, obviously, because it's, as I just said, it's a very hard challenge. And uh, by time, people realized that while trying to push this field forward for regenerative studies where you, the goal is to 
heal people. You can also use these models to study the disease and potentially come up with um, some preventive approaches or even try drugs and uh, other treatments. And the two specific studies you talked about is in the line of that. Mm. Uh, and um, the one about cancer is creating an in vivo model of cancer, which is really human relevant. And what do I mean by that? Currently, majority of preclinical biomedical research is done using animals. Uh, and this is all great because it gives a lot of insight about what a whole um, complex organism responds to a certain drug, how the disease progresses. Uh, but on the downside, most of the diseases that are really interesting to us not even inherently occur in those animal species that we are looking at. So you need to first create the disease, you create things called humanized mice, but then again, it is still mice, it is not human. There is currently a big gap in clinical translation of those preclinical studies. And I'll give you numbers. On average, one out of 10 studies that show perfect response in animals end up being useful in the clinic when they are tried. Mm. So it's a 10% about success rate on average of any drug or treatment that is currently being produced using this pipeline of preclinical uh, study approach. So it is very obvious that there needs to be some other uh, approach and it's not meant to replace the animal studies altogether but maybe in parallel using these human tissues that are made through this process of tissue engineering as disease models. Mm -hmm. In other words, something successful in animal trials, normally the next step would be clinical. Yes. Uh, but that this could come in between and say, hey, uh, here's another fail safe before we get there. Yes. Why don't we spend some yes. more time? Yes, okay. because failed clinical trials is not only a lot of money that's spent, uh, uh, also it can be dangerous and like also time consuming. It delays the potential um, remedies from reaching to people who need them. So in some ways, I mean, this this might add another step, but it actually might be more efficient to do it this way. Yes. Also, it can be done in parallel at one point mm. to speed up things. And the other good thing about it is you can do it in a way that is high throughput. And what I mean by that is it is fairly expensive and not very ethical to like produce a large cohort of animals and try everything right and left. Not really like um, paying attention to uh, the specific goal, but in some cases you wanna try things with not uh, having those restrictions in mind. Mm -hmm. So you may use these tissues as a large scale uh, trial platform for narrowing down things and then try them in larger animals, for example. Mm. So it can go both ways. It can be a step after or it can be a step before and do the final toxicity, uh, systemic toxicity st uh, studies, for example, after making sure that at least to some extent it works. Okay. Talk to me more about the, the, the breast cancer study because uh, it seems like we learned something about the types of tissue and how cancer re reacts to it or responds in there, right? Yes. So uh, in the model we created, we were aiming to study how the surrounding fat cells in the 
breast tissue plays a role in the progress of cancer. So uh, many tissues consist of more than one cell type. Uh, and in the breast tissue, you have these fat cells that are very prominent in the tissue. And fat cells, you wouldn't guess, but very active for uh, in producing things that can uh, keep the cancer cells happy because they are cells that produce these things called growth factors. And growth factors can be utilized by cancer to spread easier. Uh, and the cells that actually uh, produce these are more are uh, pre-fat pre cells. They are not fully, fully differentiated cells in the sense that they are not really specified fat cells yet, but they are pre-fat pre cells, which are more like stem cells. And what we looked in our study is we created a model where we have these pre-fat cells that are stem cell-like cells that sit in the vicinity of that cancer growing and uh, how cancer manipulates those cells to stay in that more stem-like state and mm. produce more of these goodies because once they are fully turned into fat cells, they are not that good at producing those good things, growth factors and so on, that okay. can be used by the cancer to invade further. Um, so more interestingly, we saw that the stiffness of the surrounding tissue actually affects that. So if the environment is more stiffer, cancer cell is better in manipulating those cells. And that's an observation we were able to make because we had this disease model outside of the animal tissue or human tissue where we can play around with these parameters one by one. The other one is the um, uh, heart transplant. That was really fascinating to me, too, because like you said, it's it's the idea of creating this tissue and then testing something. Uh, in this case, um, prolonging the uh, the viability of, of hearts uh, yeah. who are that are in transit. I wonder if you could just kind of go through that study with us, too. Sure. The important thing about that project, uh, when you have a heart transplant, you want to take it to someone that's in need. You cannot do experiments on it. And because of that, the standard transfer solution that has been used has been used for decades. And there is not much progress on it because no one wants to risk using a viable heart in the expense of doing research. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the case of the animal studies, you end up getting differential responses because their mouse and also mouse transplants are very different than human transplants because like, <laughs> I can imagine so <laughs> yeah, the, you, you oftentimes have very genetically similar individuals among mouse because they are produced in the lab for that particular purpose uh, anyway, so uh, we used this model and we came up with a, a stem cell based, this time a different type of stem cell based goodies that uh, they produce for keeping cells longer uh, alive. Uh, and we tested different combinations of con and concentrations of those on these tissues we created in the lab and came up with a cocktail that can be added to that standard solution that you preserve the hearts currently and 
effectively doubling up the time. So that being said, this needs to be again tested in mm-hmm. larger animals. Uh, but this was an example where you can start with human samples and do a high throughput analysis of multiple things before you go ahead and try it finally in a um, complete uh, organism like a pig model or a larger animal model. Hmm. It's fascinating uh, to me. I'm curious, back to the field of tissue engineering, what's what's on the horizon there? What what are new applications? Where, where's this going? One big push on the field of uh, tissue engineering is creating more 3D printed organs. So not only you want to uh, create these organs specific for uh, a patient, but also ideally uh, we envision like uh, operating rooms where you have a 3D printer set up in one side of the room. And during the operation, the clinician will need a part of the leg to be recreated or part of the heart to be recreated and the 3D printer will print in situ. And this sounds like a science fiction, <laughs> but I think it will happen in our lifetime. Even even right now, when I go to my dentist, in my dentist's office, there's a 3D printer that they're printing fillings, ceramic fillings. So we are not that far. I mean, it will take time to get mm-hmm. there, but one of the uh, more science fiction visions is having that kind of aid right there in the operating room. Um, and the other big push, obviously, is in this general theme of personalized medicine. Uh, so it also aligns with the models that I was talking about. So say you're a high-risk heart attack individual. You had your family uh, going through these heart attack patients already. And you can have your own little heart attack models created and test drugs on it or see how susceptible you are indeed. And same for cancer. You can have your pre-drug screening cancer models before the actual drug administrated to see how it can um, treat your own particular type of cancer. Like you said, it does sound science fiction-y, uh, but that's that's got to be part of the, the appeal of being in the field. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Pinar Zerlotuna, thank you very much. Thank you. In Rome, there are certain days people will wait upwards of a few hours in the line to enter the Vatican museums. Millions of people queue up for the experience each year, and the highlight of that experience for many is the chance to enter the Sistine Chapel, where the frescoes of Michelangelo adorn the walls and ceiling. There was a time not long ago, however, when it seemed the sacred site's popularity may be its undoing. You see, the millions of visitors were bringing with them an excess of dirt and body heat and, get this, breath, and that was rising to the ceiling and resting on the masterpiece paintings. It threatened to break down the pigment and destroy the works over time. But breathe easy, an American air conditioning company stepped in and donated a new ventilation system that solved the problem. If a solution couldn't be reached, the Vatican was mulling some kind of virtual experience wherein visitors could see the creation of Adam in pixels, not paint. Not exactly something worth waiting in line for. I think when you consider the, the six million annual visitors to the Vatican Museums, uh, these six million people uh, bringing with them this absolute mania and 
fervor from the Sistine Chapel and Raphael rooms, for which they wait hours in line uh, to see in person. Um, when you consider these things, you can really begin to comprehend art significance in society. Um, people travel for art. They plan trips of a lifetime to Rome to see the Sistine Chapel and St. Peter's Basilica um, because these facets of the Vatican Museums are conceived by our visitors not only as masterpieces, but as peak culture. That's 2017 and Notre Dame graduate Sophia Bavacqua. She's in the midst of a five-year fellowship at the Vatican Museums. So, um, my job at the Vatican Museums is most closely aligned with seven different um, art restoration laboratories, the largest restoration laboratory complex in any museum in the world. And um, I function as an intermediary between the needs of these restoration laboratories uh, to complete and finance restoration projects, such as the frescoes of the Sistine Chapel, um, and a donor base of about 2,400 individuals who give perennially to the Vatican Museums. So I work with the laboratories to um, decide which works in the galleries need restoration. Um, which methods and technologies will be employed in the labor of the restoration, and finally, how much it's going to cost. Sophia studied abroad in London, where she completed an internship at the prestigious Dulwich Picture Gallery. We caught up with her at the Rome Global Gateway, where her advisor, Heather Hyde Minor, is director. It was Miner's offer to come to Rome for another project that initially drew Sophia here. And at almost the same time, the opportunity at the Vatican opened up. It's really fortunate that things worked out the way it did, especially as an art history major. Everyone's saying you're not getting a job. But <laughs> so I think uh, working at both the Dulwich Picture Gallery in London and at the Vatican Museums, um, I've learned to kind of convey and discuss art um, with a wider audience beyond the dialectic academic one, um, and also with many different types of audience, audiences in both of these cultures. Um, and for me, this discussion that you uh, have with the museum goer, uh, be it a literal discussion or um, in a curriculum that you develop or a text you write, is the most important part of the whole experience because that discussion instigates the connection with um, your museum go with your viewer, which hopefully they'll take with them after they leave the museum. But only if there are works to discuss, and that's where you can't help but observe an interesting mix of science and faith. The Vatican museums employ cutting-edge technology in the service of work that is wholly creative, if not spiritual. And restoration, then, is cultural maintenance by restoring the splendor of our various uh, sculptures, paintings, architectural monuments, um, so that we may give to these new pilgrims, in a way, uh, the experience as the Renaissance and Baroque masters intended it to be. Also, I think that restoration is a way for us to kind of perpetually revisit the past, um, because when studying an object, uh, you're, um, it's, it's objecthood, not as a work of art surrounded by theory, um, you're able to glean a more profound understanding of how it was made and often why it was made in that century. And it's made for a blending of a professional and personal experience that will shine brilliantly on the canvas of Sophia's life. Particularly at the Vatican, um, there's been not only a language barrier, Italian not being my first language, to work with, but also a 2,000-year-old, very hierarchical culture that 
you are expected to respectfully assimilate into, um, but also learning how to navigate your own way within this kind of bizarre, hermetically sealed culture uh, so that your own work can shine through. Um, I think that entire experience has really helped my professional development. I think being raised Catholic uh, in South Bend, Indiana, and then attending the University of Notre Dame, this is just kind of another chapter of um, like the, the Catholic experience, which in Rome takes on heavy art-filled significance. Um, and being able to attach uh, kind of the theology of Catholicism that you learn in Notre Dame to a myriad of visual narrative illustrations uh, within the episode Catholic faith has been uh, a really amazing experience. For more Notre Dame stories, visit nd.edu. The Notre Dame Stories podcast is produced by the Office of Public Affairs and Communications.